0: This is The Sidebar for the week of August 25th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. This one was
1: very public. And it was very clearly meant to send a message to anyone who opposed Kim Jong-un that he was ruthless and that no one would be spared, not even his uncle.
0: As tensions rise with North Korea, this week we examine the history of that country's ruling Kim family. We spoke with Jean H. Lee. She is the author of Kings of Communism, Inside Kim Jong-un's Bloody Scramble to Kill Off His Family. It's in the September edition of Esquire magazine. She also led the Associated Press's coverage of the Korean Peninsula as bureau chief from 2008 until 2013. And she opened AP's Pyongyang Bureau in North Korea. We spoke with Ms. Lee about the Kim family's rise to power, the idea of North Korea as an absolute monarchy, and the message Kim Jong un sent with the assassination of his half brother in February. Joining us from Seoul, South Korea is Jean Lee, with North Korea consuming so much attention and so much effort by the Trump administration we wanted to take a step back and better understand the Kim family. So let's begin with their rise to power post-World War II. How did it come about?
1: So the Kim family, their rise to power is really central to the rise of North Korea. Now, Kim Il-sung was a an anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter. Uh, there was a period of about 35 years when Japan colonized the colonized Korea, so this was from 1910. And that ended with the end of World War II, with Japan's surrender and World War II. Uh, and what happened, not to go into too much history, but what, what happened in 1945 was that uh, the Soviets came in and from the north, and the Americans came in from the south and decided that in this vacuum, they were going to occupy the Korean peninsula and divide it between them at 38th parallel. And this was meant to be a temporary division, uh, with this, the Soviets wanted to put somebody that they thought that they could control and somebody who would be able to carry out Stalin's policies in North Korea. And they picked this young man. His name was Kim Il Sung. Uh, that is a nom de guerre, so that's not his, his the name that he was born with. Uh, he is somebody who had spent some time in uh, the Soviet Union, uh, had spent some time in China, and uh, and was a had already built up a reputation as an anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter. So they installed him in Pyongyang, and uh, he was he was uh, he was the man who became North Korea's first president when North Korea became its own country in 1948.
0: In a piece that you wrote for Esquire magazine, the title is called Kings of Communism. I appreciate the flow chart because it does it does get complicated trying to keep track of the three generations of the Kims, not only family members but also half sisters, half brothers and mistresses involved in all of this. Can you explain
1: I know. It's a big family. Uh, there are a lot of kings. very hard. There's, there are names that are replicated. This is very common in Korea, in traditional Korean culture, to have names replicated like that. Uh, now, it's also very common in, it was very common in Korea traditionally for men to have, for the kings to have multiple wives, if there would have been multiple queens, So the Koreans would be accustomed to that. Now, I should clarify that this is not the case in modern-day South Korea or modern-day North Korea, but the Kims are an exception. What's really interesting when we look at how the Kims did rise to power is that they really, what what Kim Il-sung did was really model himself after some of those monarchs of the past. When I really look at North Korea as a kind of Modern-day absolute monarchy, rather than a communist country, to a certain degree. Um, one of the one of the things that Kim Il Sung did when he crafted, when he was trying to craft uh, his Juche ideology, which is the ide- the ruling ideology of North Korea, was to bring in not only Korean tradition, uh, but also lean on communism and also to lean on uh, his family's Christian background bring all of these different elements together into a very uniquely Korean or North Korean kind of communism. So one of the things, there are a couple things here. Uh, One of the things that we saw with the Kims was a hereditary transition of power, which was the first time we had seen in a communist country. Obviously, we've seen that with Cuba. uh, But when this happened in North Korea, it was the first time the communist world had seen this kind of hereditary transition. So that was the first sign This is something different. There's a different kind of communism. And then the second thing, as you mentioned, the family tree, the vast family tree. And this is, as I mentioned, a way of bringing Korean history and that history of monarchies uh, into play. And to pass down, to kind of lean on that history to keep the the power in one family. And that, Kim Il-sung felt, was a way to keep make North Korea strong and keep it intact, bringing in a new political system, but also leaning on some tradition and history.
0: And in trying to really better understand how this family works, what makes it tick, you come away with a couple of conclusions, ruthless, cold, and calculating against family members.
1: That's certainly how I would characterize the current leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, you know, I was there for the. I was there in North Korea for the end of Kim Jong Il's rule uh, and the rise of Kim Jong Un. We really didn't know who this young man, Kim Jong Un, was. He really had been kept out of the public eye in North Korea, so he was he was somewhat of an unknown figure, not only to us in the outside world but to North Koreans. When Kim Jong Il had a stroke in 2008 and disappeared from the public eye. Uh, I had just started my tenure as AP Bureau Chief in Seoul and the first story that I had to write was, who's next? Who's next in line? We just didn't know because no, none of the sons had been formally tapped to succeed uh, Kim Jong-il, so it was a real mystery. Now, so I, sa- I just explained this because in the first years of his rule, I didn't know what he was going to be like either, and there was a real sense of hope on the ground in North Korea at the time, that things would be different. Uh, he was a young man, had been educated overseas, was said to be very modern. Uh, so there was a lot of hope that this would be very different. Now, one of the things that happened very early in Kim Jong Kim Un's reign was the was the execution of his uncle. So this was in December two thousand thirteen. So almost uh, two years uh, into his rule, his 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 aunt's husband was put on trial and executed and that was a shock not only to the north koreans but for me as well
0: in an that execution really that was very public correct
1: it was very public and that you're absolutely right so unusual so many of the purges and assassinations or executions in north korea happened very quietly of course the, the gossip uh, the rumor mill and the gossip certainly hear about these things, but. Uh, generally speaking, they're kept out of state media. This one was very public, and it was very clearly meant to send a message to anyone who opposed Kim Jong-un that he was ruthless and that no one would be spared, not even his uncle.
0: So let's move to the story of his half-brother, who who was in Kuala Lumpur. We've seen the video from the airport security cameras. The question, why did Kim Jong-un need to go after his half-brother and why such a public death for him? That was certainly shocking
1: for a couple reasons. Not only that it was his half-brother who was killed, uh, and, but also that the manor. So it took us a couple, it took a couple weeks before we got, a, got word that he was killed with VX, which is an extremely toxic chemical weapon. Uh, so there were a couple messages here, a couple of things that we learned. Uh, we always suspected that North Korea had chemical weapons, but here it was clear that somebody, that they were willing to use it in a public space. I mean, this is absolutely terrifying when you think about how many people are passing through an airport terminal. And this is a chemical agent that just a drop can kill, can kill within seconds, within minutes, uh, and it can linger and potentially um, threaten or harm of people. So it was, it was done, this assassination carried out in a way where uh, he was dead within, say, 15 minutes. Uh, as you mentioned, we, we got to see all of this unfold because of CCTV cameras. And that's another interesting element. It was done so publicly. So perhaps like the uh, execution of the uncle, something that was really meant to send a message now, there are a couple of things I'll just give you the backstory on when it comes to the half-brother. The timing of it wasn't lost on me. Now, what came to mind immediately was that February, that is a month that is devoted to celebrating Kim Jong-un, uh, sorry, celebrating Kim Jong-il. Kim Jong-il's birthday is in February. It's It's the second most important holiday behind the birthday of Kim Il-sung. It's really interesting, but... The way we celebrate Christmas and, and, and perhaps Easter is the way the North Koreans celebrate the birthdays of Kim Il-sung and uh, Kim Jong-il. Um, these are occasions when North Koreans are looking to curry some favor with the political elite and with the leader. So there's some things that are served up as offerings. Uh, maybe a rocket test, it could be a nuclear test, I mean, those are, those are the most extreme examples. And this is another extreme example, the assassination of a brother who may have been seen as a threat or just uh, somebody who wasn't, wasn't popular with the leader. So the timing of it, it was re- right on the eve of this big national holiday, Kim Jong-il's birthday. And I immediately thought about a very similar assassination exactly 20 years earlier. So it's not the first time that a close family relative of a Kim uh, leader had been assassinated, and perhaps that, that assassination was offered up as a birthday gift.
0: Do you have any sense, Jean Lee, of the family life of uh, Kim Jong Un? Is he married? Does he have any children? What's it like beyond the stage, the public stage that he is on in North Korea?
1: He is married. He did marry a woman named Sol Ju, who, like his mother, was an entertainer, a performer. And uh, we know that he has at least one child, a daughter, who was born in 2012. So that's very interesting, because I suspect that given the traditional patriarchy of, of Korea, that he would have wanted a son to succeed him, to have been born and, and to succeed him. But he has a daughter, so so perhaps the next leader of North Korea would be a woman. Um, there are, there are uh, rumors that he may have had another child as well. Uh, it seems it's you know we, he has been very public in introducing his wife, which is quite unlike his father. His father uh, did not introduce his family to the North Korean public, um, but it's very much like his grandfather Kim Il Sung, who did make his family very public, and did elevate his wife as a as his partner. So it's a very interesting mirroring of the relationship or the marriage um, that his grandfather had.
0: And as you point out in the September edition of Esquire magazine, Kim Jong-un understands Western politics, having spent some time at a Swiss boarding school, correct?
1: He did. He did, from the time he was young, spend uh, some time in Switzerland. Uh, he was there under a pseudonym, he and his, his siblings. So they are the, he and his two siblings are the products of one of Kim Jong-un's mistresses oh as I mentioned, she's a performer. Very interesting. She was a, she's an ethnic Korean who was born in Japan. Um, and, uh, so they, when she was taken ill and, um, sent to receive treatment, the children were sent to Switzerland for their education. And so, yeah, he did spend some years there. So there, it's interesting because his classmates didn't know who he was. They assumed he was, the child of one of the diplomats. Um, one of the students that, I, that we spoke to when I was reporting on this said a car showed up with a driver. We just assumed he was the driver's son. So people did not know who he was at the time. So it suggests that to some degree they kept to themselves and kept their identities secret. Um, but one thing that does come through uh, from interviews with teachers and former students classmates, is that he loved basketball. So that's one clue that this is something that we know about Kim Jong-un today is that he was a huge Chicago Bulls fan. Um, we certainly, we know that from the repeated trips that Dennis Rodman has made to North Korea since he took power. Uh, but uh, one of the interesting things as well is that, that w- what we can guess is that he was exposed to Western culture, to Western ideas. Uh, and the hope or the assumption was that he would take those back to North Korea and perhaps uh, bring about some modernization or some change in in thinking among the elites and among that top level of leadership.
0: Well, let me ask you about Dennis Rodman, because how did that all come about? He has been over there uh, fairly frequently.
1: This is a story that I broke uh, be- before Dennis Rodman's first trip. And it's uh, I was, at the time running the AP Bureau in Pyongyang and had, to, had, had figured out, and this is purely uh, just out of chance, the editor of Vice started following me on Twitter. So I, I wrote him back and said, when are you coming to North Korea? And so he still likes to say that I, I blackmailed him into admitting something. But what I did was go back to the North Koreans and ask them, who's coming from the U.S.? Is there a delegation? I said, yes, a basketball player named Dennis Rothman. So what Vice did, Vice and HBO did was really clever. Uh, They had, they knew Shane Smith from Vice knew from previous visits and previous reporting that that Kim Jong Un loved basketball. This is some, this is one of the few things about him that we knew. Uh, So he decided to to find a basketball player to give him some access to North Korea. Now Shane Smith himself did not come. They sent a team, and uh, I believe uh, Michael Jordan was approached and said no. Uh, but Dennis Rodman, so a fellow Chicago Bulls, agreed. And so I was there. I did interview Dennis Rodman before his first trip to North Korea. Um, and he they went in with the Harlem Globetrotters. So it was really sort of pitched as a, a sports diplomacy mission. Uh, so that was the first trip. And subsequent trips have not been with HBO and Vice. They've been privately funded uh, and I think have been less successful in terms of uh, – PR for for Dennis Robin, and certainly it's been there have been some interesting and some outlandish antics that have occurred on those trips.
0: Let me ask you about another story that uh, really became front and center earlier this year, and that is the case of Otto Warmbier. What happened to him? What have you been able to piece together? Why was he killed?
1: Really tragic. You know, Otto Warmbier was one of hundreds of Americans who. In recent years have visited North Korea as tourists Uh, and it's unfortunate but I do think that North Korea does carry somewhat of a mystique and is somewhat of a novelty uh, for young Americans but they perhaps don't realize how dangerous it is to be there and the web of rules and regulations that could get them into trouble so what we do know, or uh, what we've seen is, from CCTV footage that the North Koreans shot, was that he tried to bring back a souvenir. So there is a an area of the hotel where he stayed that is off-limits to tourists. It's simply It's simply staff quarters, but it looks very different than the rest of the hotel because they do, in any staff quarters, just like... You may have in your offices where you have a break area. You've got company policy and employees a month, uh, uh, things like that. Say maybe some sort of poster on the Heimlich maneuver. North Koreans have something similar, but it's their version of it, and it'll be party policy. Uh, things to remind them what they're supposed to, of what they're supposed to prioritize. Uh, So there's a lot of mystique around this. And what he did was go down to those staff quarters and try to take down a poster. Unfortunately, the poster that he tried to take down was one bearing Kim Jong-il's name. And I'm assuming he didn't read Korean, probably had no idea that the poster he was taking down would have been sacred because it bore the leader's name. And that got him into trouble. That is, seeing that any kind of defacement of property or or anything related to the leader is going to be considered an anti-state crime under North Korea's law. Uh, And so, unfortunately, he he was uh, detained before he was able to to fly back to Beijing and was was put on trial and sentenced to quite a stiff sentence. I believe it was uh, 12 or 15 years of hard labor. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. And... um, and we didn't hear from him for quite some time. That was, that was last year. That was more than a year ago. Um, and what we did find out in May was that the day after his sentencing, he had fallen into a coma. And in May, the, he was released by the North Koreans, flown back to the U.S., and unfortunately never woke up from his coma and died shortly um, after returning to the U.S. So, so as you mentioned, this is a significant. You know, this case was significant in terms of uh, what ha- whether or not we Americans can travel to North Korea, because it was this case that really spurred legislators to to institute a travel ban on North Korea. What they wanted to do was prevent Americans from unwittingly falling into the hands of the North Koreans to serve potentially. As diplomatic pawns, uh, and also the other, the secondary concern was pumping money into the into North Korea's tourism agency, which is a state-run entity, and perhaps funneling money into uh, into bank accounts that could go directly to feed or help build the nuclear program.
0: You were last in North Korea this past May. Is fear part of daily life? For North Koreans, do they have a sense of what's beyond their borders?
1: Whether they are aware of what's beyond their borders really differs differs depending on where you live. Certainly, North Koreans living along the border are very aware of what's just beyond their border. Many of them travel, travel back and forth, uh, are involved in trade. In Pyongyang, the capital, there's quite a, there is quite a significant segment of the population that does have an opportunity to travel overseas and does get to see the outside world. Um, but generally speaking, aside from those two populations, they are largely cut off from the outside world because they don't have, most people don't have access to the Internet. They don't have access to cable television. So North Korea uh, has um, three, ch- three state channels. All their media is state-run. Any information that they get is going to be vetted by the government. Uh, So it's not uh, the same kind of open access to information that we have in the rest of the world, or at least in the West, and certainly not in the U.S. In terms of the sense of fear, I mean, I I do want to emphasize that North Koreans do the best that they can to get by. And I think people find it surprising that they have hopes and dreams, that they like to laugh, Um, they have killer senses of humor. Uh, but they're like people anywhere. They're going to try to make the best of a difficult situation. They do realize that they are in a difficult situation, um, that South Korea is doing far better economically, uh, but um, they do also live with a constant sense of fear that they, they grow up with, they're, they're born into. This is a country that relies on surveillance and uh, has a, a very intricate system of reporting on one another to really keep everybody in line. Um, This is very much a part of their daily lives, something they're very used to. So North Koreans are are quite adept at uh, saying what they know that they should be be saying and also avoiding talking publicly about things that could get them into trouble. North Koreans are very good at masking their true thoughts. They're, they're extremely opinionated. They are no less opinionated than any other group of people I've ever met. That said, there is an impression, I think, in our media or in the outside world that they are brainwashed and robotic. That is absolutely not the case. However, they're very good at putting on a mask because they've, they've been doing this since they were little. There are certain topics that they know that they shouldn't talk about. They, sh- they know that they shouldn't criticize their political system. They know that they shouldn't criticize their leaders. But other than that, they're they're pretty opinionated. Uh, but they do live with uh, this intricate and very punishing penal code uh, that does govern their daily lives and govern, it governs what they say, where they go, uh, what they have access to. They just simply do not have freedom of information, freedom of movement, freedom of speech, the way that we do in the rest of the world. And it was, As somebody who spent a lot of time there, I found it uh, extremely oppressive. Uh, But to a certain degree, that's what they're born into and that's what they're used to. And so they don't necessarily know any different unless they leave the country and have a little bit of a taste of what the outside world is like.
0: Well, let me take that fear question one step further and ask you about the family. They describe living in North Korea as a fancy prison. Is there a sense of fear within the family of Kim Jong-un? Indeed, and, and as part of this
1: Esquire story, what I did was really dig into that family tree and just, you know, I really was thinking, we, very, we were very publicly exposed to what happened to the half-brother who had fallen out of favor. You know, Kim Jong-nam had been fairly opinionated in recent years about what he thought about his, his younger half-brother. Uh, and so, you know, that did raise the question, well, what about the rest of the family? What happened? to a member of the Kim family, if their branch of the family falls out of favor. And as I chart in that story, uh, you see that they really only have a couple choices. So one choice is to stay within the system and stay in North Korea and lie low. And this would be perhaps staying in this fancy prison, right? I mean, really, so that's with with some of his... Siblings, we see that they're lying low, and they're really trying to stay within those boundaries, make sure that they stay out of the crosshairs of their brother. Uh, the other option is to defect. And we did see, we have seen a number of close family. Kim Jong-un's aunt has defected, and she was the, she was the aunt who took care of him when his mother uh, was ill and had passed away. She's she's since defected. She and her husband have defected and live in the United States. So they made a very clear decision that they were going to have to they were going to have to figure out another path for themselves. Uh, Kim Jong Kim Jong Nam's cousins, who are really like his siblings, were raised with him in the palace in Pyongyang. Uh, both of them have defected. Their mother defected as well. Uh, perhaps once they realized that their branch was not in was going to be in power also figured out that they needed to find another way out. Uh, And for those family members who don't play the game or follow the regime's rules, assassination (laughs) appears to be a a major threat. So one of the cousins was assassinated, uh, and now Kim Jong-nam.
0: It sounds as if you have a book in the works on the family.
1: Well, I don't know about that. Um, Certainly fascinating. And for me, understanding how this family operates and understanding how they built this monarchy is really key to understanding North Korea, modern day North Korea. I think that this country is so hidden from us to so many uh, in so many ways. And it's not just, it's both that we don't have access, but also that the messaging from North Korea is so obscure. I mean, it's really hard to get at what's real because there's so much propaganda Coming out of North Korea, it's North Korea is like an onion. You just keep peeling. You have to just keep peeling away at it to try to get to understand it. We can't look at North Korea as uh, purely a communist country. We can't look at it, we you know, as a um, as a country that takes its cues from Soviet Union or China. We have to look at it for what it is, which is a country, a small country that is trying to use everything that it can. Its history. Uh, its history of uh, monarchies, um, the history of uh, Marxism and Leninism, and uh, its place in this region—in this, in- what they you know—they call themselves a shrimp among whales. It's a small country that feels itself has always felt itself threatened by much larger um, outside forces. So, understanding North Korea's sense of its place in the world and how the Kim family has decided that they are the ones who are going to keep this country together is really important to understanding North Korea. And, you know, very little good scholarship. Well, there's been a lot of great scholarship, but there's very little, there's so much more in Korean. And so what, one of the things that I did with this piece was delve into the memoirs of the people who were there in the inner circle. What I didn't want to do was rely on accounts from people who were far from that inner circle and and perhaps passing along gossip, along gossip. So what I did was turn to the the, the man who was considered the architect of Juche ideology. He defected in, um, in the mid-1990s uh, and um, family members who had written memoirs. So there's a wealth of information out there, just hasn't been translated into English. And so what I wanted to do was share some of that um, from within the family to help us understand who this family is, why this, half-brother may have been assassinated, and um, why this family is so integral to North Korea's identity.
0: Jean Lee, a native of Minneapolis, joining us from Seoul, South Korea, the September edition of Esquire magazine, Kings of Communism. We thank you for your time and perspective.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.